Well, this morning, in uh, looking at the letters to the seven churches in the first in chapters two and three of the book of Revelation, moving on to church number two today, the letter to the church or the angel of the church at Smyrna. So, and it's really a long section. <laughs> and to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the. The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So you'd think that if there's only two churches that don't get any criticism, you'd think that this would be kind of an easy, easy road that he's laid out for this church that gets no criticism, but we're going to find the exact opposite is the case. Uh, let's just open in prayer. I thank you, Father, for the words we see this morning that are words of encouragement and yet have kind of a bit of a a downside to them as well from a human standpoint. But I thank you that you have a plan for us, for each one of us, unique as it is. Uh, and I thank you that you are orchestrating that plan to perfection. I thank you too, Father, for how you're working in, uh, in, in Kim Johnson's life and for how he's gone through the surgery and asked that he would be get, get a full recovery and uh, have no more signs of this cancer. I also ask for those I know that are suffering with various kinds of colds, flus, and whatever this time of year, that you would draw near and encourage us and cause us to worship you even more when we're in a situation where we're down. And Father, this, the church at Smyrna could have been in a situation where they were down too, and yet you commend them. You commend them for standing fast, for overcoming, for conquering, for not compromising with the culture that they find themselves in, despite the opposition they received. So help us, Father, to glean what we can from this and to understand and appreciate more deeply what you've done for us and what you do for us each day. Your mercies are new every morning. Your faithfulness is great. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I tried last week to help us to imagine what it might have been like to live in first century Ephesus if you were a Christian. In particular, we looked at all those religious practices that Christians were expected to perform if they were going to be acceptable to their neighbors. And cities in the Roman Empire were very religious. I mean, they imported gods from Rome. They also absorbed the local deities. And they put them all into public ceremonies that went on on a regular basis. But their understanding of gods was not the ones that we take for granted today. Our Christian heritage through the years has given us a different understanding of what a god is. I'm going to give you just a little bit of an example of what these people were facing in the, the kind of the, the religious polytheism that they faced. Because they're, they're small in the culture, their small g gods were powerful and smart, but they weren't perfect. They were immortal, but they weren't eternal. That is, they lived inside of time and went on living, but there was no concept of time without end where they lived. They were immortal, but also immoral. 
They mostly didn't care whether or not humans did the right thing. I mean, ethical concerns like uh, caring for your neighbor or avoiding sin, that was your business, not that of the gods. Moral decisions were for negotiation between humans and the gods stayed out of it. They might help you if you were nice to them. You didn't pray, dear God, I have been good, please help me do well on my exam. But really it was something like, dear God, look at what I've done for you. Want to do something good for me? Would that spoil some vast eternal plan? All worship of pagan gods took the form of a transaction. Dear God, if you do this for me, I'll sacrifice a really nice lamb I've got for you. Maybe you wrote that down and left it at a shrine or a temple, like the ones in front of the temple at, uh, for Artemis in Ephesus, where you'd actually leave your request there, or maybe on the tree that was in front of the temple. Uh, and, and in that transaction, you would promise something if indeed the Lord or the God came through for you in some way. Now, if the God actually kept his or her part of the bargain, then you're obligated to keep your part, or you're going to face the hurt feelings of that kind of vengeful God. And the advantage was that the lamb was not due and payable unless the God came through. And it was no big deal at that time that all of life was filled with these bargains. You know, to be a good citizen and be a good neighbor, you did what you had to do to get along. And you played the game, especially in public, so that all could see that you were a good citizen. Very rarely was there any private worship going on. It was all things that were done in public. You offered sacrifices at your union meeting. You offered sacrifices at citywide celebration, at festivals to the gods that happened on a regular basis. You wore your mask. Failing to go along with the crowd meant that you didn't care for your neighbor. Because if something bad happened, if someone got sick, people looked for who it was that caused it. And the cause was always that some god was offended by someone. So you didn't want to be that someone the one who didn't follow the crowd. Because if you didn't actively, joyfully participate in the activities that were aimed at keeping the gods happy, you're automatically suspected of hating your fellow citizens, hating your neighbors, if bad things happen, or maybe if bad things might happen. Sound contemporary? <laughs> now consider Smyrna. This was the culture that you were immersed in when the Christians came from Ephesus, most probably, to Smyrna and preached the gospel. That was the cultural milieu in which you lived. Can you imagine just how radical the gospel was? I mean, Jesus was a man, but he was also fully God. The God above all gods and above all nature. As a matter of fact, he created it and was in charge of it all. Jesus became your substitute in offering his perfect life for your sinful one. And it was not a transaction that you controlled. In exchange for your trust in him and his completed work on the cross as proved true by his resurrection from the dead, he promised new and abundant life that was not dependent on the arbitrary and capricious actions of so-called gods who were just amplified petty humans. Now this new life was given to you so you could be a citizen of a new kingdom, God's kingdom, a kingdom that was not of this world. And God's kingdom trumped Caesar's kingdom completely. And God wanted to make you into a new creature, with new desires that would prepare you for an eternal existence on a newly created earth. In return, because he changed your heart, he expected your complete allegiance and devotion to him and to the law of Christ. 
namely that you'll serve him with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Radical stuff then and becoming even more so today. So keep that background in mind as we examine the second letter of the seven, the letter to the angel of the church at Smyrna. Once again, one of two churches that received no criticism from Jesus. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. And this restates, as we saw last week, this restates part of the vision that John saw of Jesus, where Jesus was standing among the seven golden lampstands <coughs> that represent the seven churches in Revelation. Chapter 1, verse 17. It says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. So Jesus picks up that very quality of his, that characteristic, and he moves it into the letter to Smyrna and applies it to them. As I mentioned last week, I don't think that the, the, the angel of each church is literally a distinct spiritual being, a guardian angel charged with the welfare of each church. I think that the angel is the church. The stars are in his hand. Jesus is emphasizing the fact that he has control over the churches. As he said, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. So Jesus is standing among the lampstands, among the menorah, and both stars and lampstands speak of churches since they reflect both the light of their king. But the lampstands really emphasize the fact that he's present among his churches. He knows them. And the stars emphasize the fact that he's protecting them in his strong right hand. So the churches are to be the lampstands that shine in the world. And he has fellowship with each of the churches. He knows what's happening in every church, which ought to be an encouragement to us. And he has the power to bring the church through persecution without compromising with the earth dwellers around us. He also declares about himself, he says, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Jesus picks up on what he said in chapter 1, verse 17 here. For Jesus to say that he is the first and the last indicates that he's fully God. He's claiming to be God. I'll give you one example. There's three or four examples in the chapters 40 to 48 of, of Isaiah. But here's one. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, and you notice that word Lord is capitalized. This is Yahweh. This is the God of the covenant. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. So the Lord declares that he is the first and the last. And using these words, Jesus is claiming really to be God the Father. Only God is the first and the last. Only God is eternal. And Jesus is claiming that for himself. Which is really remarkable because these chapters in, in Isaiah are talking about the, uh, the emphasize the fact that God is one God and he's very powerful. He controls the nations. So Jesus is not a second God, but we can see here the roots of the Christian doctrine of the Trinity that was duked out over the first three centuries of the church. So why does Jesus emphasize that he's the first and the last to a church where believers are being threatened with death? He's letting them know that he rules over all. And nothing happens to them that's outside his control. We can trust him with our lives. Even as we are persecuted, even as we're put to death, the Lord is our shepherd and he's taking care of us and he's watching us. 
We are the stars in his right hand. Now, Smyrna was a beautiful city located on the Aegean Sea about 35 miles north of Ephesus. It was an ancient city. It had roots going back to 3000 B.C. or so. And it grew kind of slowly until about 600 B.C. when it was invaded by a local army and not just conquered but totally destroyed and leveled. And it lay abandoned until Alexander the Great shows up on his eastward conquest about 330 B.C. So three, four hundred years it lay abandoned. And, and Alexander had a vision that he should rebuild Smyrna, which he did. And over the centuries, then became a very prosperous city, especially when the Romans came into power. Had a lot of beautiful buildings and gardens at the time when the book of Revelation was written. It was pretty an amazing city, 200,000 people or so. Now, local literature that's been excavated about that time were filled with references to death and resurrection based on their city's history. They would say, we are the city that once was dead, but have now come to life. And Jesus picks up that theme when he begins the letter. Why? Because he knows this church. He says in verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty. Now the major reason for Smyrna's prosperity was location, location, location. It had a great natural harbor, and it was the closest seaport to Athens, which had been the gateway to Europe, uh, directly west of there. It was also the western terminus to a whole lot of trade routes that went to the east. So a lot of trade routes ended up at Smyrna, in turn was put on ships and carried to Athens and other places around the Aegean Sea, or even to Rome. And it's interesting that the Turkish city of Izmir, which you can see kind of surrounding the city of the, the ruins, uh, is still there. As a matter of fact, I think it's the third largest city in Turkey. And it's the only one of the seven churches that still has a town around it. I think it's kind of interesting is that <laughs> the, the people in Izmir have discovered that they can make a lot of money off this. So they're actually taking down buildings around it that were actually built over the ruins so they can excavate the ruins. You know, tourists are a big deal these days. Well, it had a larger harbor than Ephesus. And at the time of John's visions, it was growing. Well, Ephesus was kind of in slow decline because the harbor was being silted up by the river that flowed in there. So it was one of the most prosperous cities in Asia. And with typical Chamber of Commerce humility, the city called itself the Pride of Asia. The city was also one of the major centers of emperor worship. It tried to out-Rome the city of Rome itself. As a result, it was awarded the privilege to build and maintain four temples dedicated to emperors. That was a, I think that's the only city that, that, was, that grant was given to in the empire. There was also was a large community of Jews uh, in the, within the city too, some of which, as we recognize, were hostile to the Christian faith. I'm going to meet them a little bit later. Now, Smyrna produced a, a famous wine that was quite popular in the empire, but its major claim to fame is in its name. Smyrna means myrrh, a highly valued and very expensive spice, and Smyrna was the major exporter of myrrh. As a matter of fact, it was the only port licensed by Rome to export myrrh. And you can imagine the myrrh went, a lot of it went to Egypt because that was used in embalming. Now, I find it interesting is that many of the uses of myrrh 
fifth with what we know of the church at Smyrna, there's some parallels. For example, you know, myrrh was a primary ingredient in the holy anointing oil that God commanded Moses to make, with which he anointed the tabernacle and also Aaron and his sons. In Smyrna, we likewise see a people who are set apart and consecrated, whose lives are dedicated in service to God. Now, second use is found in the book of Esther, where the eligible maidens were prepared for 12 months before they were sent in to the king. And for the first six months of their preparation, they were purified with the oil of myrrh. So myrrh here could also represent purification. In our case, purification for meeting the, the king of kings himself, Jesus Christ, which also parallels the situation that's facing this church. A third use of myrrh helps us to understand why it's linked with death often. Remember, in Mark's account of the crucifixion, Jesus offered wine mixed with myrrh. So myrrh was used as a drug to kind of dull the senses so that the pain wasn't quite as bad for people who were condemned to death. But Jesus rejected it. So Christ sets the example of being obedient to death by rejecting the option of compromise that would have eased its pain. That perfectly fits the church at Smyrna. Uh, a fourth use of myrrh also brings us back to the subject of death, because myrrh is used as a spice for anointing the body for Jews or embalming the body if you're in Egypt. Remember that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea actually brought a large quantity of myrrh and other spices to anoint Jesus' body after he was in the tomb, after he was dead. Now, the root word for myrrh means bitter, even though it's very fragrant. Myrrh was harvested in areas of Turkey and Arabia by slicing the bark of certain really thorny trees, causing the sap, the life of the tree, to ooze out. And the sap would harden as the tree tried to heal itself. And that hardened sap was collected as myrrh and then ground or liquefied. Considering the wounding that the people of Smyrna were going through, it's fitting that their name would also mean myrrh. Myrrh pictures turning bitter circumstances into a sweet fragrance. In fact, myrrh is the root word for Mary. So in addressing this letter to the church of myrrh, Jesus draws attention to the fact that he was dead, but he also said, I came back to life. And so he encourages them by kind of highlighting his own bitter experience that was actually transformed into a glorious victory over sin and death through the resurrection. Further, Jesus says, I know your tribulation. Now, that word tribulation is rather an interesting word because it, it has its, wor- its origin in rendering a raw agricultural product into something, well, something like olives or grapes, but rendering that into something that's more valuable and lasts longer, like oil or wine. So tribulation is used to describe the process of actually crushing, increasing pressure to crush the raw fruit until the juice or the oil was released. This word fits Smyrna to a T because myrrh is a perfume, the fragrance of which is released by crushing. So here was a church that was being squeezed by persecution. That's what that word tribulation means. And Jesus here recognizes there's three forms of pressure that's being applied to the church to squeeze. He recognizes that these things are an attempt to crush their faith by getting them to compromise with the, with the pagan culture that they lived in. And the first pressure that he gives is the pressure of poverty. 
He says, I know your poverty. But then he says in parentheses, but you are rich. You know, it was tough to be a Christian in Smyrna because they had to live between two extremes. There was within the church, I'm guessing, a, a warm and loving fellowship that must have warmed their hearts and, and reinforced them for action in their communities and strengthened their faith. But outside, in the city, they faced persistent hostility. And the Christians of Smyrna had to live between these two extremes. Now, we don't know exactly know what made them poor, but we do have some broad hints in Scripture. In the book of Hebrews, we find this. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Joyfully accepted. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Well, Christians at that time, even today, in certain parts of the world, often became impoverished once they let their faith be made known to the neighborhood. And by not worshiping pagan gods or the emperor, Christians often lost their job, they were kicked out of trade associations, and they found their neighbors wouldn't do business with them anymore. A common criticism of the church in its early days was that the members were of the lowest rung of society. How could an educated person possibly accept a religion that was filled with the great unwashed? How come all the poor people were there? Why would anybody else want to be associated with a religion like that? But I would submit that many of the people who were, of the, who were poor, poor Christians, didn't start out that way. But they were impoverished because they refused to let anything take the place of Lord Jesus as number one. They often had to sell their homes and their possessions in order to feed their families, just like we just read in Hebrews. And also, in looking at the book of Hebrews also, we tend to concentrate on the first parts of, the, of chapter 11 on the Old Testament heroes uh, because their faith is highlighted, and we like to look at that and possibly emulate it. But the chapter ends with a further description of nameless Christians. It says this, They went about in skins and sheep, skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. That was much more common experience of the Christians in the first century than the faith issues we saw in the very first part of that chapter, where people had great success from a human standpoint. So Jesus tells them in the eyes of the world, they are poor. But he says in the eyes of God, you are rich. Kind of the opposite we're going to find at the church of Laodicea. Jesus always taught that true riches are those that come from a personal relationship with God, where he fills the heart with grace and love. And going back to Luke's gospel, there's a great account using one of Jesus' parables that applies here. In Luke chapter 12, it tells of someone in the crowd with Jesus who said, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, if I were going to talk to Jesus, I think I'd come up with something more substantive than that. I'd like to think maybe a good theological question, but instead, it brings up this issue of inheritance. Well, Jesus responded by telling them that life, one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. 
which totally contrary to their understanding because if you had possessions, that meant that God blessed you. If you didn't have possessions, that meant that God was not blessing you. Jesus was continually turning on its head. So he followed that with a parable. And the parable is that, the famous one of the rich man, who had more crops than he could store, and so he tore down his barns and his buildings, and he built new ones so he could handle all the, the, extra, the surplus that he had. And then he said, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So our wealth is to be directed in ways that enrich God by furthering his interests, by seeking first his kingdom. I mean, God expects that we're going to be good stewards, we're going to be good caretakers of whatever material possessions that he gives us, and he expects we're going to invest those resources and activities that are going to further his interests on earth. So as we provide for others here, whether they be fellow believers or our neighbors or missionaries taking the gospels where we can't go, we're really just sending our investments on ahead of us. Now, most of us are relatively affluent, especially as we consider our situation versus the rest of the world, which should give us pause. Because I sometimes wonder, deep down, if I have so much that I really don't need to rely on Jesus. I mean, if that were true, and I hope it never characterizes my life, I would be truly poor. But if we lose everything that we have, like Job in the Old Testament, would we maintain our integrity? Would we remain rich toward God? Would we agree with the Apostle Paul as he described himself to the Corinthian Christians as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything? Well, not only were the Smyrna Christians being squeezed by the pressure of poverty, they were also under pressure through slander. Now, in the Roman world, Judaism was a legal religion. It got that special status because its founding predated that of Rome. Also, the Jews were okay with offering public sacrifices to the, to the, for the health of the emperor. But as Christianity began, it was seen as a part of Judaism because that's where its roots lay. But about the time that John writes the book of Revelation, the tide is changing. The Jewish leadership wanted to make sure that the Romans knew that these Christians were not Jews. They were not a part of Judaism. They were separate. Matter of fact, they were contrary to everything they would say that we stand for. And many of the church's early converts, especially when there was a large synagogue, were individuals who were Gentiles, who were called God-fearers, who associated themselves with the temple because they, they recognized and wanted to be a part of Judaism. They saw the, the need for morality but they never were able to be, never were allowed to become full-fledged Jews. Now those God-fearers were leaving the synagogues in droves because the gospel is much bigger than any one ethnic group. And they began to realize that the gospel of the kingdom is much bigger than just something centered in Jerusalem. Because the New Testament always puts a relationship with Jesus ahead of Jewish genealogy. 
So there was a smear campaign going on against these Christians. Lies were being told about them. And we know from early literature that because the Christians talked about eating and drinking the body of Christ and, and the blood of Christ, they were accused of being cannibals. Also, because they refused to visit the pagan temples or to acknowledge the gods of the pagans, they were called atheists. So it's likely that John is referring here to a situation where Jews were telling the Roman authorities that Christians refused to honor Caesar and the Christians were, had no legal right to say that they are part of Judaism, almost like the Jewish leaders did to Jesus before his death. Now, of course, the Roman rulers would respond to that information because they wanted to keep peace above all else, and they would imprison some of the Christians. Therefore, when Jesus says that the devil will be putting some in prison, he likely means the devil's going to do this to the leaders of the Jewish synagogue and the Roman authorities. So what John is teaching here is that what the devil and the Jewish leaders are doing is evil. They're responsible for their evil, and they're going to be judged for it. But at the same time, Jesus is the first and the last, and he's perfectly good. So he reigns even over the evil actions of the devil and human beings. Nothing can touch us that doesn't, first of all, pass through the hands of our Savior. Therefore, as we entrust our lives to him, knowing that he's good and he works all things for good, we don't deny the evil that others have done, but recognize that at the end of the day, the evil done by the devil and evil human beings is really a tool in Jesus' hands. There's mystery here, and if you ever read the book of Job, you see the mystery fleshed out in many chapters. But equating ethnic Jews with a synagogue of Satan has been misused at times to persecute Jewish people. It's a black mark in the history of the church. We know that Christians have sinned in this area, but is John the one that's guilty of anti-Semitism here and hate speech and saying that the Jews are a synagogue of Satan? I think we, ought, we should need to say no for, of the, for that for, the, for a couple of reasons. First, you know, John himself was Jewish. As a Jewish writer, he was not saying that all Jews were satanic. He was speaking of Jews here who were pushing for the imprisonment and death of Christians. And second, at this point, you know, the, the Christianity was a very small movement uh, with no legal rights whatsoever. I don't think John ever imagined that his words would eventually be used to mistreat the Jewish people. John's words are not the words of an oppressive and powerful majority, but of a really a beleaguered and powerless minority. So he's really encouraging the church here, reminding them that they really are God's true people through faith in Jesus Christ. And we are to love our neighbors. Now we know a lot about the pressure of slander in our day. I read about it every day. It's become an art form, especially in the world of social media. Cancel culture. That's a euphemism for slander. Since the accused has no opportunity to confront his or her accuser or to offer up more context to possibly a comment. And as Paul taught the church in Ephesus as we looked through that book a few months back, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. That's what walking worthy of the gospel looks like. Well, if that weren't enough, there's also a third pressure. 
pressure of actual persecution. So we've got, we've got poverty, we've got slander, but the worst is yet to come. Jesus says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. Now, this is the first mention of the devil in the book of Revelation, by the way. Uh, but the Lord acknowledges that he who is the first and the last is going to allow this to happen. The devil's going to put some of them in prison. Well, the devil's going to look a lot like Roman authorities. And those Roman prisons were terrible places. They were not intended for long-term incarceration. You held them there for trial or probably for execution. If you wanted to eat, you had to have friends come and bring you food. Uh, They were horrible places. And people, once they were in there, they knew they were faced with the threat of execution at any time because they weren't going to hold them there for long. But our Lord says here are three very encouraging things in the midst of that. So if you ever are in a situation where you have to face this kind of persecution, he gives us three things here to strengthen you. First of all, he says you're going to be put in prison to test you. And the emphasis here is upon the word you, because some have read through this and stated that it's God who's the one who's going to learn something by this test. But that can't be since God already knows our hearts. He knows what you can take before you ever have to endure it. He doesn't learn anything new from your testing. But we sure do. It's to, it's to test you that this hardship is given. It's to strip off superficial supports that you might have that you've been leaning on and to show you how much you need to rely upon the grace and strength that comes from God alone. Then second, he says, the second encouragement is it's going to be for a limited time. He's going to test you 10 days. Now, we don't know how long this took place or how it did in, in Smyrna, but the encouraging thing is that the Lord determined that there's a limit. The test can't go beyond it. Now, in the case of the people in Smyrna, so that 10 days might have ended up in their physical death. But he says it still has an end. Which harkens back to the prophet Daniel. Remember when he was in, in Babylon, one of the first things we read about in his book is the fact that he was subjected, was subjected to uh, the food of the, of the king. And he and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, give us 10 days of eating the food of the common people rather than the king's luxurious food. Then test to see if we come out just as good or maybe even better than the people that are, also, that are on the rich food, which they did, of course. He asked for a 10-day trial. Now, probably it wasn't literally 10 days. I don't know if any results would show up in 10 days. But it showed that there was a definite end to the period of time. It wasn't going to last forever. It was going to be a test that had a duration. And the third encouragement that he says is, be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Which intended to be a contrast to the crown of Asia, which was the pagan temple dwellings, uh, buildings that were built on the hill above Smyrna. That was an earthly crown. It was a recognition of earthly status and a source of great pride to this city. It could also refer to the situation that Christian athletes faced. If you won an athletic contest, particularly like a race maybe, a wreath or a crown of laurel leaves was placed on your head. But that crown was also dedicated to the God who sponsored the games and who gave you success. As a result, Christians had to opt out of most athletic contests. They were never going to receive a victor's crown in this life. 
But the Lord says he's going to give them so much, something much better, a crown of life, a crown of eternal life. What a much greater thing that is. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans that the sufferings of this present moment are not to be compared with the glory that should be revealed in us. In another place, writing to the Corinthians, he said, This light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us to produce an eternal weight of glory. So we're to be constantly encouraged by the fact that these trials and testings and pressures are doing something valuable. Jesus tells the church at Smyrna, in verse 8 here, that he is the one who died and came to life. Those words are addressed to believers who are facing death, literally. And Jesus reminds them that he faced death as well. But death didn't have the last word. Jesus triumphed over death, and he challenges the believers in verse 10. He says, be faithful unto death. Well, he concludes this letter with an appeal to the individuals in this church and also to all the other churches down through history, including us. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural, not just Smyrna. This applies to all churches now. This is also the same term that Jesus used when he would deliver a parable. If he who has an ear, let him hear. Or if remember back when Isaiah was called into prophetic ministry, that he was called to go to people. He said, you're going to speak, but they won't hear. You're going to, you know, they're not going to listen. But go and do it anyway. Um, so he who has an ear, he says, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers, who overcomes, will not be hurt by the second death. Now in chapters 20 and 21 in Revelation, there are three references to the second death. And we're told plainly exactly what it is. It is the terrible lake of fire, the symbol of the final judgment for those who refuse to repent, those who refuse the gospel of the grace of God. It's prepared for the devil and his angels, but it's going to be shared by all those who choose the way of the devil. They're going to be separated forever from God. When you think about it, that's what they ask for in their life, though. People who say, I don't want anything to do with God. I don't want him in my life. Eventually they get their way. For the rest of eternity, they're separated from the grace, mercy, and love of God. This is the most horrendous torment a human spirit can bear. And it's vividly symbolized by the burning lake of fire called the second death. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be responsible for any, in any way for anybody who ends up there. This is kind of our impetus to make sure that we're bold in sharing the gospel. But Jesus is simply saying, if you listen to what this letter is saying to you, if you trust me in times of pressure and persecution, I will give you the gift of eternal life. And you'll have nothing to fear from the judgment of God. You'll die once, but you won't die twice. You'll be kept safe forever from the second death, from final judgment. Which is really Paul's reason for rejoicing in Romans chapter 8, where he says, Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So as long as God keeps us here on this earth, we Christians are called to be faithful, here we're told, even unto death. 
And when we think about what others can do to us, I think of the words of John Piper that I love. All they can do is kill you. All? <laughs> they can't ultimately take away your life. Where does courage come from? It comes from the assurance that we Christians will all face the first death, but never the second one. The worst thing that people can do to us can't finally and forever hurt us. Jesus has triumphed over death, and so will we. Now, one of the famous early examples of what this passage means afflicted one of the disciples of the Apostle John himself, a man named Polycarp. Not a fish. It's actually a man. Now, he was the bishop, or he was the leader of elders at the churches in Smyrna. Now, th think about the fact that you have a town of 200,000 people. Christianity had a big influence. There's more than one little church in Smyrna. There's several, a lot of churches. And the bishop ultimately became the person who was a spokesperson, spokesman for all those little churches. So things were addressed to the church at Smyrna, although there's a whole lot of house churches probably that were around town. But in, in 155 A.D., at the age of 86, he was sentenced to death for being a Christian. And the story of his death was actually written by a witness with maybe some embroidery here and there, but it's the earliest account of a Christian martyr. And it's been preserved. We actually have this account. And here's, here's part of that account I'll read for you. By the way, just something I discovered was that uh, February 23rd is the day that the Eastern Orthodox Church commemorates the death of Polycarp. But it's coming right up here. But here's, here's an excerpt from the, uh, the martyrdom of Polycarp. The proconsul said to Polycarp after his arrest, Have respect for your old age. Swear by the fortune of Caesar. Repent and say, Down with the atheist. Polycarp looked around at the wicked heathen and multitude in the stadium, and he said, Down with the atheist. <laughs> I love this guy. Swear, urged the proconsul, reproach Christ, and I will set you free. Eighty-six years have I served him, Polycarp declared, and he has done me no wrong. How could I blaspheme my king and my savior? You threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and is then extinguished. But you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring it on. It says when they, when they set the wood under him afire, a wind came up and it actually blew the flames away from him, around him, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So, sensing frustration, the soldier pulled out his sword and killed him. Now at this point in history, this kind of persecution isn't happening in our country, although the storm clouds are gathering. However, it is happening to brothers and sisters around the world. I mean, we can draw encouragement the fact that God is actually in control of these situations, even though if you read some of them, like in the Voices of the Martyrs website or some of their publications, other places around the world, you know the church around the world is, is in a great deal of suffering. We've been exempted for a long time from that. So we can kind of draw encouragement from how the, the, these people are responding from places as close as Mexico to as far away to the side of the world where people are actually being persecuted for their faith. 
So I think it's, you know, checking this once in a while is kind of good for our prayer life to understand that there are people out there that need our prayers. But also, we need to consider what happened here in Smyrna because who knows what's going to happen in the future and how can we be encouragement to one another? Because the form of persecution that we're facing is much more subtle than what these people were facing, ultimately. But it can be just as effective. If you read anything about the, uh, the, the social credit score in China, uh, not to scare anybody, but it wouldn't be that difficult to do something in this country, too, to where if you, if you toe the line, you'll be able to eat, have a house, things like that. But if you don't, basically you disappear. You have no access to anything that you, that you need, food, whatever else it might be. So we, are going to, we will face different kinds of persecution, not like Smyrna did, at least not right now, but I think we need to keep praying for ourselves that we'd be, we would be faithful to death. We'd be faithful to the end of our lives here on earth. And also pray for those who are undergoing what Jesus said would happen in Smyrna and beyond, and actually until he returns in power. So I hope that even though the letter in some ways is kind of a, a downer, it's actually a book of encouragement. No matter what you happen to face in your life, at a personal level or a bigger level, Jesus already has filtered it out, and you're only getting what he wants you to have in order to build your character and to test your faith. Let's just close in prayer. Father, these are difficult things to, uh, to consider, and yet the history of your church has shown that individuals have faced these pressures time and time again. Most of the time with success, most of the time actually overcoming and conquering. But Father, I ask that you would help us to be able to sense those areas where we are tempted to compromise with our culture, to put you second and something else, whatever it might be, first. Whether it be ourselves or things that we have or things that we do, we want you to be number one in everything. So give us discernment, please, to be able to figure out and to sense immediately what those things might be that you might be able to resist and be able to overcome and be able to conquer. I also ask for our brothers and sisters that are around the world that are suffering or making a decision for Christ could mean execution or ostracism from their family or living on the margins of society. Uh, I thank you, Father, that you've given us the, the freedom that we have and you've given us the affluence that we have. May we use it wisely to glorify your name. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.